Hello, I'm Zev Newworth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for people who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express in the podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, I think this is going to be super interesting, fast-paced dialogue about a topic within healthcare that is quite honestly poorly understood by most, including healthcare executives and, and healthcare policy experts. The topic is employer health, but don't be fooled by that because it has a much broader impact and much bigger implications for healthcare in our country and, and even the financial welfare and well-being of working Americans and their families. I'm so excited. Our guest today is Dave Chase. He is an amazing healthcare entrepreneur. He has been, for me, one of the most brilliant thinkers and doers in this sector. What he and his colleagues are doing at Health Rosetta is really quite profound. I'm just, again, so excited to speak with him again and, and to share an update on how he's thinking about things and what he and his colleagues are doing. Before we jump in, I'd like to take a moment to inform you about the upcoming publication of my second book, which is so, by the way, connected to our discussion today. The book is entitled Beyond the Walls. It's about the megatrends, the humanistic movements, and the market disruptors that are radically transforming American healthcare. It's really about the journeys of these courageous entrepreneurs like Dave today, the trailblazing leaders, the disruptive organizations, that are really going beyond the walls of our legacy healthcare system to create a more personalized, effective, and humane system of care. I think it's actually quite different from many other books in the genre in that it's not about what's wrong in American healthcare, it's actually about what's right and what we should be doing more of. I'd urge you to go check it out. It's actually on amazon.com. It just went up this week and you can pre-order it, which I would recommend. The initial printing is gonna be limited. It's coming out in September. That's the official publication date. I am so excited to share the book with you, and I think it'll resonate, especially with those of you who have been listening to this podcast. I also want to share that I, I feel really, really good about promoting the book for a bunch of reasons, including the fact that I'm going to be donating all the proceeds from the book to a nonprofit called Feeding America, which is dedicated to eliminating hunger in our country. So without further ado, again, so excited. Dave, how are you today? I'm great. And congrats on the book. I know that can be a monumental amount of work. So I'm sure it, it it's probably as close as men get to birthing a baby. So congrats. I totally agree. And I would say as close, emphasis on as close, so we don't get ourselves in trouble. So, you know, Dave, I, you know, I'm so excited to jump in and you and I've been writing back and forth with each other. And I, I have so many questions for you, which I, I think the listeners are going to want to hear about. Before we do that, just uh, you've been on before, but it's been a while. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, what got you into healthcare, and how you created Health Rosetta? Yeah, I mean, my background in healthcare was I started in consulting, working for what's now Accenture, putting in health IT systems. So you can blame me for some of that. And then I started Microsoft's healthcare business, which is a, about a $30 billion ecosystem and 28,000 global partners just in healthcare for Microsoft. That was many moons ago. And essentially what led me to the journey I'm on now, which is quite different because I switched over to the health plan side, was unfortunately by the time I was in my late 30s, I'd had 
several friends die young. And the last one that really hit me squarely in the, the gut was a friend who'd had a similar career trajectory, had done well, been in the tech industry and, you know, good person and, you know, had some reasonable financial success. But unfortunately, the healthcare system, long story short, destroyed her physically, emotionally, financially, leaving behind a 10-year-old daughter as a single mom. And of course, all those situations are rough. This one was particularly rough because it was a complete system failure. And I recognized that I was part of that system. Of course, not through malice. And there's so many good people in this industry, but the system is radically broken. And her situation, as I dug in, wasn't unusual. And so that really is what put me on this quest to find out why that was. And it came down to the what governs healthcare is health plans. And so I had to move into that area. And as I dug into that, it was very clear that they needed to be rebuilt from scratch. Other than the clinicians, there's virtually nothing to save about our current system. That's the cold, hard truth. And our goal is to transform employee health plans from being the number one driver of inflation, poverty, and bankruptcy to delivering what they should be, a driver of well-being and wealth. You know, Dave, I'm going to save the questions about health Rosetta to later on in, in our discussion, but just picking up on this issue, that last comment and statement you made regarding your friend, so sorry to hear that. And I've had similar experiences. And so I completely just you know, empathize with that. It's it, And you know, what's so sad is I hear the story a lot, right? I think we all hear, you know, about others who have had these sort of similar issues and, and just, it's just so it's, it's tragedy. It's, it's tragic. And your statement about the state of healthcare, you said healthcare is on the cusp of collapse. How does that manifest for you in terms of what's actually happening? What do you see happening that makes you say that about healthcare? Yeah. And there's, you've had guests like Robbie Pearl, who've been very articulate about this. And so I don't have a lot to say beyond that, but what I will say is you could argue it's already happening. It's happened in rural areas. And I don't think it's going to be one, you know, cataclysmic event all at the same time, like sort of a COVID type of thing, but it's a rolling disaster. And you're seeing it in lots of critical areas, rural areas, critical access neighborhoods. And why I say that is the consequence not only on the broad society, but you've seen it with the exodus. You know, last figures I heard was I think over 400,000 nurses and docs had left the profession in the last 12 to 18 months. You know, you've spoken about this and that's creating real issues. And in the midst of this massive wealth transfer that's happened by our healthcare system that I think people are waking up to, mm-hmm. there's record levels of moral injury and horrible suicide rates amongst clinicians, as well as the people just leaving. Again, I think it's very clear that it seems almost impossible that it's going to happen, but on reflection, I think it's inevitable. And I think Robbie has clearly laid this out in his Forbes articles and his podcast with you. 
And I think that's where it really behooves of all, all of us who know there's lots of good people trying to do good work and people who are called to care for us in our most vulnerable moments to figure out how do we rebuild it, right? Because that collapse sure looks like it's underway and we need to make it happen. And I think it's going to happen locale by locale. If you're a glasses half full person like I am, you know, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity that's a, also a duty. And I do believe there's kind of the Phoenix, you know, rising from the flames type of opportunity. Yeah, well said. I, you know, one of the things, Dave, I give you credit for is, and I think it's so critical is you taught me that I don't think many people actually understand this or are aware of it, that the most insidious harm and by insidious, I also mean hidden harm that the healthcare system has yielded on working Americans is the reduction in salary and wages and spending power and saving power over decades. It's really eroded the financial wellness and welfare of working American families and retirees. And I did not, I had no clue until I spoke to you, it's probably been two, three, four years where you first started to lay that out and did the math with me. And so just if, if there's anything more about that you want to say or update, I think about that all the time because it is it is so insidious and people are just not aware of it. Yeah, it is interesting. You know, it becomes very clear. The data is very black and white on this. Once you dig in and connect the dots, but just a lot of people don't do that. You're talking 30 years of wage gains stolen, you know, from the working and middle class. I mean, I did just some napkin math you know, looked up a few things on a typical young boomer or old exer, you know, that had been working for 30 years mm. and had healthcare grown at the rate of regular inflation versus what had happened. That spread between those, if you had invested that into an S&P index fund, the average household would have over a million dollar nest egg. And the reality is on the ground today, the vast majority of Americans, and particularly in the working middle class, they have less than $1,000 in savings. And again, you don't have to connect 10 different dots. It's a very direct line from where premiums have gone. And essentially, people might get a raise, but every dollar and then some gets eaten up by the healthcare system. And the consequence is... That is, you know, a definition of an economic depression is two or more years of wage stagnation or decline. So you're talking a 30-year-long economic depression for over half the workforce. That's brutal. You know, you think that's way longer than our Great Depression. You're talking way longer than 1930s Germany. And crazy stuff happens. It doesn't make it right, but it makes it understandable. And that's the consequence of our healthcare system. Yeah. Wow. It has so many implications for so much of the kind of, I think, social and political unrest as well, that that wage depression that you're talking about. And and again, it's just it's so insidious. So I want to, again, I want to keep us moving along here, but thank you so much. Dave, in our correspondence, you mentioned something about the biggest change in employee healthcare policy since 1943, and you left me hanging. And so I'm dying to know what it is. And along those lines, what do you believe is the single least understood facet of healthcare by policy leaders? What is it that we all and they all are missing here? 
Yeah, it is interesting given that employee health care is about half the dollars and probably two-thirds of industry profits. It's remarkable how little understanding there is. And the 1943 reference is something where, you know, the employee health benefits were an exemption to wage controls during World War II that kind of codified our employee-based health system. What happened recently and went into full effect in the last year is two separate things, but definitely related to each other. One was the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021 that was passed the very end of the Trump administration. And essentially, there's this duty that's called fiduciary duty, where you're stewarding somebody else's money. And the law that governs retirement benefits and health benefits is called ERISA that passed in the Ford administration. And you know, I sometimes joke, if you put your employees' money into Uncle Bubba's investment fund that has high fees and terrible returns, you're going to get your butt sued. There's been two suits all the way to the Supreme Court against employers who didn't steward their employees' money well, unanimous verdicts against the employer. And now the, the same trigger that caused those class action cases to ultimately go to the Supreme Court have happened with this Consolidated Appropriations Act where it requires the issue that went to the Supreme Court was around conflicts of interest of broker compensation, things like that, basically hidden revenue streams for the brokers. And that's really pervasive in healthcare. And so it's basically going to follow that path. The other thing that happened and kind of went in effect at the same time was an executive order, probably one of the few Trump executive orders that the Biden administration has supported which is around hospital pricing transparency. And then they negotiated agreements with the carriers. And when you take those two together, it is a massive sea change. It's starting to impact already, but it will probably take three to five years for it to fully kick in and people to recognize. And there's lots of thrashing around. So that's a big thing. And then and the least understood facet of healthcare by policy leaders is that, you know, I'll draw this analogy of, you know, in your daily life, there's some federal laws that impact you. There's some state laws that impact you. But in many ways, it's the local laws, you know, local taxes, zoning, et cetera. And in healthcare, indeed, there's important federal and state laws. However, the de facto laws of the land are all the legal documents that define a health plan. You know, what is a health plan but a series of legal documents, right? There's provider contracts and vendor agreements, and, and then there's different documents depending on whether you're in the employer plan or Medicare or whatever. And what we found in this big insight is sometimes people are confused by the trillion dollar plus waste in our healthcare system, right? PwC, National Academy of Medicine say a third to a half of what we spend is waste. And it's not an accident. It is all codified in those legal documents that make up a health plan. And if you don't tackle those, all you're doing when you're trying to do fixes is kind of squeeze the metaphorical water balloon. And so you want to fix healthcare, you got to get into those documents. And that's, you know, where I never imagined I would be worrying about, you know, legal documents of health plans, but that is this untapped lever that most people are not aware of.
Wow. Those are, I think, two significant revelations about this industry. That's a really important one. I mean, what you're saying is that the waste is actually codified. I mean, there's a, kind of an intentionality about it. Oh, yeah. And, you know, you take this esoteric category company that most normal people have never heard of called PBMs, pharmacy benefit managers, mm. right? The, the big three are all Fortune 50 companies. There's not one pure pharma company in the Fortune 50, not to let them off the hook, but it just gives you an idea of just how massive they are and how massively profitable they are. And we've seen over 30 different revenue streams that they've created for themselves that, again, if you've got a fair contract that doesn't exist, but those are deeply unfair contracts that you know lead to a situation where take something like insulin, the PBMs are actually making more money per vial of insulin than the pharmaceutical companies, right? That's how much money this is at play. Yeah, that, that whole, I mean, that's a whole other topic, PBMs. And, you know, I was shocked to discover as I was doing research for the last book, that when you look at Cigna, Aetna, Optum, that you look at their different revenue lines or revenue streams or businesses, their their pharmacy benefit management is is by far their largest source of revenue. And I, I don't think people even understand what a PBM is or how significant it is in terms of the sizes you're talking about. So thanks for raising that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's it's mind-boggling just how how they're not only the largest revenue streams, but they're almost pure margin. I mean, it's just amazing how profitable they are. Yeah. You know, that first thing you said about the law cases going to the Supreme Court. So is this the issue, and, and, and you've mentioned it before in our conversations, that what people, and tell me if I'm misrepresenting this, but people don't understand that these benefit managers that come and work with companies, with employers, their incentive is not based on how much they save the employer, you know, and the employee it's based on the revenue and sometimes the revenue increase year over year. So is that what you were referencing in, in terms of some of the really positive shifts that are happening in terms of that having to be disclosed and even now being something that could be taken to court? Yep, absolutely. So the worst job they do, the more money they make is kind of the bottom line in the status quo. And we found up to 17 undisclosed revenue streams that are, you know, PBMs being one of them, but there's a bunch of others. And so you have to root those out. Fortunately, there's good people that are, you know, doing it a different way, but that's, they're the outliers today. And so this, if you look at what happened in the retirement arena, there was a massive realignment and many people basically, you know, had their careers essentially end because companies had to take it really seriously, this issue, right? And it definitely gets company's attention when lawsuits are happening and and you know some of the lawyers call class action attorneys kind of the de facto mm -hmm. fourth branch of government mm -hmm. and now the same players are very active finding the right cases the right targets and so the ripple effects like i said it will take a little while right mm -hmm. those cases have to wind through the courts you got to get the right case and all that but the courts are educated in a way that they weren't 15 years ago. And so the abuse is far worse than what's happened in the retirement space. And if you look at the impact of the class action cases, particularly the ones that went to the Supreme Court, 
there's billions and billions in retirees' pockets that wouldn't be there otherwise. So the impact is real. Yeah, yeah. I want to ask you another question. You mentioned something about open sourcing in healthcare and with hospitals. And I wonder if you could explain what you mean by that. Yeah, it just, of course, lives are, lives are on the line for healthcare. And one of the things that we've seen, you know, particularly me being in the technology industry is the power of transparency and openness and open source software. Trillions of dollars of value has been created. Most of the internet is on open source software. And given what's on the line, there's the open sourcing of some of the contract stuff that we were talking about that we're doing. But then in terms of hospitals, right? This is they're too important to not open source. There's it's not acceptable in the opinion of many of us that hospitals can suppress safety culture data. And, you know, you see some of the tax exempt health systems having 40 different legal entities, and there's just incredible hiding of revenues and hiding of safety data and culture that those in the know been on the other side of the firewall are well aware of that and have people are speaking out on that. And we wouldn't allow that in any other area. Certainly you'd never go on an airline that was suppressing its safety records. And so it's something we should expect. And if you look at on the positive side, I think of hospitals as kind of the fire department of our health. And you look at fire departments, they really open source what they do, right? And they're in the business of preventing fires. And when they find a new firefighting technique or a new threat, they share that very broadly. The weird thing that we have, maybe it's because of the academic roots of healthcare, is this incredibly valuable, important information is kept secret. And we need to rather demand that that's not acceptable. And if you're getting billions and billions of tax exemption, it should come with the expectation of real transparency, not just prices, but operational finances, all of that. So it it sounds like some of that, I mean, in terms of data being shared with HIEs, that seems to me to be expanding and growing and picking up steam far more than it was, you know, five, 10 years ago. But you're talking about other data, like safety data, quality data. I mean, A, are you saying that, you know, everything should be opened up? And again, how would that impact the business? And it is a competitive business. And you, you probably have some commentary about that. But do you see that actually happening from a positive perspective? I think it's, it's starting to happen, yeah. right? We have surgical centers, surgical mm-hmm. hospitals that are doing that and are very transparent about their pricing, their quality and all of that. And as the you know the prior topic we talked about, if you have a financial duty to ensure the integrity of the money that is being spent on behalf of your employees, it demands that you have that kind of scrutiny. And so what the folks who are putting in health plans are literally spending 30, 50% less with the best health plans in America, that's what they expect. And just like any other area, they will say, look, it's a privilege to serve our employees. They're our most valuable asset. If you'd like to serve our employees, these are the terms we want to work on. 
And that's not an unreasonable thing to do. You know, there's been a sense of um, impunity and entitlement that has led to tremendous harm on the American dream and on the clinicians who care for us in our most vulnerable moments. And so I think there's an accountability because of the abuse that's happened over decades. And so I like to focus in on the positive, right? We want to reward the folks that are doing great work. They're not rewarded enough for doing their great work and being transparent. And so these things always start slow, but then as they realize, oh, we can actually win on quality. We can win on being fair and delivering value to our community. Then that starts to turn the tide. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. Talking about positivity, you have shared so many case studies that illustrate things that are working. And I completely agree with some of your tenants. I mean, you said that, you know, healthcare is completely fixable. It isn't expensive to do that. And we already have the money and funding. We just need to reallocate it. I'm wondering if you could share some of, you know, case studies that illustrate, like, what are some solutions that are, that are already existing in already existence? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, when I wrote my first book, it was really hard to find them, to be honest. And I have kind of tongue in cheek on my LinkedIn profile that I'm an archaeologist because I had to like dig so hard right, to find these successes. That's no longer true several years later. And so to give you a few examples, there's public sector example, the Pittsburgh area schools, Allegheny County, it's a consortium of schools. It's about 45,000 staff. And if you compare them to another major metro in, in Pennsylvania, you know, Philly, there's $2 billion more available through the K-12 years for a cohort of kindergartners because of what they did with their health plan. And it was the union and the management getting together and realizing, you know, we actually aren't foes on this front. We want the same thing. We want great health care. We want great benefits. And really the challenge they were facing was price gouging hospitals that had mediocre quality. And so with deep data analysis, they removed some price gougers from their network with the blessing of the union. So they're spending 40% less per capita than their counterparts in Philly and allows for better teacher pay, better benefits, more librarians, smaller class sizes. So that's one example. A private sector example would be Pacific Steel and Recycling. They're about a 700-person company in nine states, 40 locations. Six years ago or so, they were spending over $8 million on healthcare. They, by today, they were being projected to spend over $10 million. The last three years, they spent under $3.5 million while their health plan dramatically improved, you know, removed cost sharing for the member, you know, had centers of excellence, things like that. That's huge impact, you know, from just a business perspective for them. I talked to their CFO to have the same bottom line business impact. They would have had to increase top line sales 25 to 30%. That's like the least important thing on this, the human impact of a much better health plan. They have member champions who help, help people navigate through the system. Again, very significant improvement to the health benefits while they got the savings. And then another example is a mix of public and private. There's a community north of Cleveland. And you started with private sector employers 
and then went to the county and then the school district and then the city and it's rippled through. And one of the things you see is the word of mouth really kicks in and kind of the tired old lines, the status quo will use don't work anymore when people see that their neighbor or their spouse is on some health plan that's costing 20 to 50% less with the best primary care they've ever had. They're supporting the local independent community pharmacists. They have centers of excellence and it's just phenomenal. So much so that the school district that had unfortunately a school levy fail and they're the eighth poorest school district in the state of Ohio Despite that, the community generally supported their school levies, but didn't this time. Happily, 11 months before, they'd put in one of these high-performance health plans, and they'd saved more money just in that 10, 11 months than the entire school levy. So that saved teachers from you know, having pay cuts, you know, extracurricular programs, transportation, you name it. That school superintendent retired to join our movement, to take what they've wow. done to the other 600 school districts in Ohio, because he felt that he could have a bigger impact on his community doing that. That's the type of thing that's happening now. And, you know, there's just so much waste and stuff sloshing around that you can then put it to higher and better uses in a community. And that's a community like many in the Midwest that's been really hard hit. And now they're on the rise. It's an American comeback story. It's amazing. Oh wow, that's that really is amazing. Have you have you written that one up? There has been some write-ups. In fact, the ABC affiliate in Cleveland just had an article on that. So we could I could share the link with you. There's also been a video put together by a patient rights group on what's happened there that, you know, sort of like a four-minute mini documentary on what's happened at our annual gatherings. You know, we share these case studies too. And so it's it's not a state secret, it's out there. And, you know, because they're public entities, it's also publicly verifiable and it's sustaining itself over multiple years now. Yeah. You know, underlying these examples is sort of this notion of locality. And it seems to be very, very early, very early on this movement to, you know, really focus on communities. And you had mentioned something about community-owned health plans. I, I suspect most people are really unaware of this, and I'm, I'm just learning about it. I'm, I'm curious, what, what's your take on it? And again, are there examples of it that are already up and running, or is this something that's just beginning to get going? Yeah, I mean, we've given community-owned health plans as a term for what we've found works around the world, some examples in the U.S., you know, if you flip those words on their head, they really describe the status quo, you know, the Wall Street rented sick care plans. That's basically what we have today. And when you have communal and health plans, like in the example I gave in Ohio, now all of those employers today are operating independently of each other. However, they all are on the kind of the same chassis. They've got the same primary care. They've got the same pharmacy coverage, same risk management, hospital contracts, so on. And a lot of it's about a mindset rather than renting something from somebody who has interests that are not aligned with yours. You know, it's like renting a home versus buying a home. And then if you think about what's going on there, organically, a health plan is emerging that is covering thousands of lives without having to raise hundreds of millions of dollars of venture capital. It's not that long of a walk from 
doing that to making that plan available to a freelancer who's on, you know, the exchanges or a retiree, you know, who's on a Medicare plan. And it's a nice runway into that. And rather than having to raise hundreds of millions of dollars, why not have that be a cooperatively owned local health utility that importantly, and this is one of the most critical facets of it, one of the catastrophic mistakes that we've made in the U.S. is we've separated the budgets for sick care from what drives 80% of health and well-being, you know, public health, social services, you know, clean air, clean water, you know, income, education, right, all that. And so part of the power of this, and we've had it happen now in many locales at a micro level, uh, where once you stop squandering that 30 to 50% of the dollars, then you can do things like what Rosen Hotels has done, where they've used just 5% of what we call the health Rosetta dividend, that savings, and they've fully pay for their employees and their employees' kids' college education. You'd imagine what that does to employee turnover. You know, it's like they're six times better than their competitors on that. And they didn't stop there. They also adopted two formerly crime-ridden neighborhoods and funded pre-K, daycare, after-school programs, so far hundreds of college education and crimes down 80%, high school graduations virtually 100%, sometimes it is 100% where it'd been some of the worst you know, in the state. And that is why it's so important to keep that at the local level, because if you do that, then you can reallocate that. I mean, the number one determinant of health outcomes in the US is income, right? That's the most obvious thing. If you no longer steal the wage gains, that helps a lot there, but then it can go to things like education, healthier food, all these sort of things. I mean, they also, we see employers subsidizing healthy food, right? Food is medicine. You know, that that's not rocket science. I mean, it goes back to Hippocrates, let food be thy medicine. So a lot of this is common sense stuff and people just rolling up their sleeves questioning the way things are going and realizing these are a fixable problem if you actually engage. Yeah, this is tremendous. I wrote down, I'm going to follow up with you. Just You actually introduced me to Harris Rosen and what he's doing with his employees and separately what he did in these two communities. And people are still scratching their heads and asking, what's the answer? And you know, I don't know how you scream it loud enough to say, hey, the answer is already here. We just need to do more of this. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely am going to follow up with you to to see who else uh, you think I need to interview uh, along these lines. I just want to turn to Health Rosetta. You know, if you could say, you know, you created it, you've got, it was really interesting is you've got Health Rosetta, but then you also do have this ecosystem, which you talk about, which is, uh, sounds to me much larger than Health Rosetta. So maybe you could say a word about that. And what is it that Health Rosetta is doing to accelerate and catalyze some of the changes you're talking about? A lot of it's just sharing what's working. You know, how do you transform employee health plans from being the number one driver of inflation, poverty, and bankruptcy, right? And what we do is essentially because we have this ecosystem, as you mentioned, right, all these people from across the different silos in healthcare coming together, right? Doctors, nurses, policy people, benefits advisors, employers that are aligned. And we just asked, you know, what works? And then 
we summarize that, that's essentially what's on our website and my books, is here's actually what's working. And then we put that to the test of, okay, it's kind of weird that the way we navigate the healthcare roads from kind of a financial standpoint is looking in the rearview mirror, aka claims. How about we look through the windshield? What are actually leading indicators of a high performance health plan? And so over several years, what we found was we could get at the best predictors. And there's about 40 questions that effectively diagnose a health plan to use a medical metaphor. So then we have a score. And then there's essentially the, you know, the medical metaphor. Then we give a prescription or a care plan. Here's how you fix it. Here's the proven approaches to that. And so what our ecosystem is about is just sharing what's working. And then what's a, been a fair critique of even like Rosen is like, that's amazing, right? And it's been mm -hmm. in place for 30 years. It's not some mm -hmm. flash in the pan thing. But in fairness, it's too much work for it to get mainstream. Worth it. But not everybody's willing to do what Mr. Rosen's able to do. So we've done you know, and our backgrounds are building stuff from inception to national scale is how do you make this highly replicable? And that's where the open source comes in is we want to make this the new market norm, the, the blueprint, the contracts, how data is shared. It's too important not to open source. And so what we've done is just make it a lot easier to stand up these new health plans that perform in the way that we've been talking about here. And so that you can go from, you know, rather than doing a few of these a year, we have one of the advisors we accredit that have basically gone through our training, adopt the model. They're only in their second year of doing this. And just in December, which is when, you know, given the annual cycle, that's tends to be the busiest month. You know, they added 150 new employers. This is one singular advisor in our program. Wow. And that's how you turn this into kind of, oh, that's a cool exception to the rule to this is the new way things are done and it's highly replicable. And why wouldn't you do it? Yeah. Wow. That's a, that's an amazing story. So people can, and I would actually recommend, I love going to the Health Rosetta website. It, I literally learn so many things each time I go. It almost feels like, you know, getting refresher courses. Another way that people can access and learn from you, you have an upcoming conference, actually. I think it's in August. Could you say something about the conference and, you know, who's going to present and what it's like? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's called Rosetta Fest. And it's really a festival of successes and proven successes. You can't get on the stage and talk about innovation theater, right? There's been a lot of that. I've gone to conferences over the decades. And if you probe it all, you know, it's one little isolated pilot that never got mainstreamed and, you know, makes for a nice panel discussion, but it's not something mainstreamed. And so we had just gotten together our immediate community, these advisors, benefits advisors who put in these health plans uh, until recently. But what we found was healthcare is so siloed, right? You could go to your orthopedic surgeon convention, your PT convention, your health IT convention, or your benefits broker convention, you know, dot, dot, dot. What is really required is this is a team sport. And so what 
you get when you come is a bunch of like-minded people who've proven that they can do it in some cases over decades. And, and it's almost seemed like a state secret, but you know, we're not making it that. And how do they do that? How do they do it in a small employer setting? How do they do it in a rural setting? How do they do it with a jumbo employer? How do they do it with federal contractors? You know, and there's certain rules around that. It's just basically there's some hands-on, you know, kind of how-to, but a lot of it's a festival success. So we're going to hand out awards. We call them the Rosies, you know, which is kind of a riff on Rosetta, but also Rosie the Riveter. And these are people who are restoring the American dream. And you'll learn how it's done. What's the, the drumbeat of most of the sessions will go. Let's start with the why, human impact story. What does this actually mean for them? Not theoretically, but it's actually happened. And then what does it mean for the employer and what they've been able to do and how it's helped them attract and retain people? And then kind of unpack how you do it okay, you know, this one tackled pharmacy, this one tackled primary care, this one did, you know, direct contracting with hospitals and basically just nuts and bolts of that. And then in some cases, you know, break out into the nitty gritty of the contracts, right? That stuff really matters. You can't win if you don't do that. And we're going to do some of the first open sourcing of some of the key contract areas, things like data sharing, and that's a good example where, again, it's like uh, data sharing. That sounds really boring. Why would you care about that? That's the single biggest predictor that we found of a high-performance health plan. If you've gotten access to your data, and that is your data, that is your duty, despite what you may hear from a big carrier, that is a great indicator of you've then taken control and you have insights. You can't, you know, I think it's Bloomberg who said, you know, you can't, manage what you can't measure. And so that's one of the first things we're open sourcing. Here's how you have the right contracts, how you ask for the data, how you use the data. Again, it's pretty nitty gritty stuff, but if you don't sweat those details, you can't have the success you need. And we want people to leave that summit as they have in the past with the ability to put it into action in their community. And so we will have physician leaders, benefits brokers, union leaders, employers, policymakers, impact investors, public health people, civic leaders. You know, the other thing that's been pretty cool is because of the human impact, you know, there's people that may not be household names like the school superintendent, but then you have people like Mike Singletary, you know, one of the 50 greatest NFL players ever. And he's actually a very soulful, community-minded guy. And, you know, he is a part of our community. Given it's in Chicago, you know, he's probably the, the second most important Mike in the sports world in Chicago. It's a great way to bring people in. And, and Mike's a guy who rolls up his sleeves and no nonsense. And, you know, a little backstory there. He was asked by a big carrier for, hey, Mike, we want your help. You know, we, we, you know, have this, I think it was a serving a Medicaid population and he's like, okay, great. You know, he's a hard worker and did his homework and came with some recommendations for what they should do to impact this community. And, you know, they pretty much, you know, not literally, but kind of metaphorically gave him a pat on the head and said, that's kind of cute. Let's just have you show up at a cocktail party, you know, where we're going to have you meet with some civic leaders. And that didn't sit well with him. 
And so he wanted to do something and, and asked around who's making stuff happen. And people like him are coming. That's exciting. You know, we've got rappers, major league athletes, you know, people coming out of the White House, just an array of people because people are fired up. You know, they want to do something and there's so many good people in the industry. And I really want to emphasize that I'm, I can be pretty critical of some of the organizations, but it's not the people in those organizations. There's good people and they're trying to make the best of a bad system. And I do think that, you know, I was just listening to one of your podcasts with one of those sort of folks. Like, I think they're trying to do the best within these systems, but we have to do a reset. That's always the case. We didn't get smartphones and iPhones by putting little icon stickers on rotary phones. You have to do a reset. That's always the way. That, that's a great image. Uh, what a <laughs> great, great, that's such a great way to think about it. You got me excited. I actually had put it on my calendar. I'm hoping to be able to attend. I'm going to really try to do it. I, I missed it last year, but I'm I, so excited about your conference and what you're doing and the momentum you're building. And Again, for those people listening, just you know, check it out on the website. I know we've kept you on a long time and I can't thank you enough because I know you're also, you just came back from Europe and you're a little jet lag. So thanks for hanging in there. T two quick questions. One is at this moment in time, if you had a message to deliver to the leadership at the HHS and, and CMS at the federal level, the government level, what would it be to those leaders? Yeah, I mean, there's a few things that come to mind. One we touched on briefly, which is, one of the things I learned during that transparency and coverage executive order was there's remarkably little knowledge within CMS, the policy shops on the employer space. And to the credit of the White House senior policy advisor at the time, Katie Talento, you know, she said, hey, read Marty McCary's book, The Price We Pay, and, and Dave's book, The CEO's Guide to Restore the American Dream. And then you'll understand the degree to which there's a problem here. And that really turned the tide and got people like Alex Azar really to be big advocates. So that's one thing, just get educated. It's it's a lot worse than what you might imagine. And it is, you know, half of Americans, right? It's not a small thing. And then, you know, I'd invite them to engage with us and realize when employers do the right thing, it's CMMI on steroids. You know, you had a former CMMI leader, this, you know, Center for Medicare, Medicaid Innovation on and I don't know how many innovations they can do in a year, but I'd be surprised if it was 100. Well, employers, like we've got thousands of examples and there's lots of things we can put to the test. And so take advantage of that. And then finally, enforce the heck out of the existing laws. One of the things in the Consolidated Appropriations Act was no gag clauses, there's transparency and coverage. There needs to be more teeth in that. Work with your brethren on the, in the FTC on the pervasive anti-competitive practices that are really harming Americans. It's not an innocuous thing. It's really you know, the clinicians, the citizens, and also work with their Department of Labor brethren and do accelerate what happened in retirement benefits. Retirees are far better off than they were 15 years ago because of that. And that's a tremendous opportunity. They could balance the federal budget with the fines for dereliction of fiduciary duty here. So that's something I'd really encourage them to, to do as well. Yeah. One last question, if you have the time. Same question, but now you're standing in front of a huge audience of C-suite leaders and board members from hospital systems across the country. What's the one message? Well, they've got a, a really a dual opportunity to not only address costs that they have to contend with, as they've been challenged financially, they're some of the largest employers out there. 
and they're squandering money like every other employer. And they have a duty under the federal law to do this. And this is one federal law and regulatory thing that can really help the bottom line. And as they do that, then they can build the muscles to then offer that out to other employers. And that's where you have some examples, some community hospitals that have done it both for their employees and then offered that service out there. And frankly, be mindful. I hate to go negative here, but if you look at the Supreme Court cases on the retirement benefits, you know, there's a 401k case and there's a 403b case. So 403b is the retirement equivalent of 401k. That was a Northwestern University. The hospitals are large organizations. They are big targets for the class action attorneys. And so there's an opportunity to get ahead of that legal risk that they can avoid because they can go after these class action attorneys can go after any employer, but it will be particularly appealing to go after employers who also happen to be healthcare delivery organizations. And so get ahead of that, right? Let's not have you be the target of that. You can do right by your employees, do right by your bottom line, do right by your community if you improve the health plans in the ways that we've been talking about during this podcast. Yeah, no, I think that's a really positive message. So thank you, Dave. And, and I, I'll follow up with you. And, you know, I'd like to get the specifics about that federal law and be able to, you know, post a link to it even. Dave, again, thank you so much for hanging in there. Any final thought or message, anything left in your mind that you want to get in before we close out? No, just keep doing what you're doing. I, I really enjoy your podcast. Looking forward to the book. As you mentioned, we'd love to have people come to Rosetta Fest, just rosettafest.org. It's August 7th to 9th in Chicago. So it's an easy place to get to. We're out on the Navy Pier. So it's a great location. And just make it happen. No matter what role you play in the industry, you can play a real difference-making role here. And it's it's not an obvious area of impact, but the beauty is you do things here literally the next day after the plan goes live, that new health plan, it can be life-changing for members. I mean, I there's stories that will bring tears to your eyes about the human impact of people finally being able to afford medications, afford surgeries, be able to take a vacation for the first time since they've been married because previously they couldn't afford vacations because of cost of medications and things like that. So it's really, you know, it's challenging area, but it's incredibly fulfilling when you roll up your sleeves and dive into it. Wow. Thank you so much for that final message and image and, and so true. So Dave, I, again, can't thank you enough. I, I Absolutely. I'm in awe of your knowledge and accomplishments and what you're continuing to do and build and grow. So thank you so much. And and as I do every episode, as you know, Dave, I, I conclude by thanking all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or and those of you who are supporting those who are taking care of patients. We so truly appreciate what you do and also recognize how critically important your work is to all of us. My friends, this is Zeb Newworth on creating a new health care. Until next time, be well.